Billy, can I let you in on a secret of interviewing? Randy, we have been doing this for more than two years now, but what secrets do you have that I haven't already heard? Well, this one is so obvious that you're just going to kick yourself. In our chat with Nate Kinch, he told us how intelligent one of my questions is. Did you notice that? I did, and I also saw how proud you were in that moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, all I did was ask him about the first thing he brought up at his Product Tank London talk, and... I know that I love it when people ask me a question about something they've already written a whole talk about. Oh, I see. Very clever. And you're telling me this because? Well, you know, our chat with Nate is all about trust and trustworthiness. And by going behind the curtain a bit, I'm hoping that we can let our listeners know that they can trust us. Oh, I see. And, um... Do you think we have a problem with that? <laughs> Actually, no, don't answer. Um, but let's just skip any more of our blathering and get right to our chat with Nate. This one was awesome and so complex and we covered a lot of stuff and didn't get to half of what we wanted to, but I hope you'll really enjoy it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free Product Tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Hi, Nate. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's really lovely to be talking to you today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, So before we dive into our topic, it would be great if you could give us a real quick intro into who you are and what you do and kind of how you got into this crazy world of building products and technology and stuff. Yeah, look, I'd I'd love to. I'll keep it reasonably brief. Uh, I I actually spent most of my childhood as an athlete thinking I was going to be flying around in G5 jets, living that life. And uh, injury ended all of that. So I, I sort of came at this from uh, from a position of confusion, honestly, very early in life, like 18, <laughs> 19 years old, going, what am I going to do? Uh, I became fascinated with entrepreneurship, the prospect of having the freedom to explore problem spaces, opportunity spaces, and, and try and solve problems in concrete ways that, that help people. And I first uh, built a like a, a, a clothing label, and that was that was really cool. Uh, but the injury thing just like it was like a dull pain; it never left me. So I ended up building a, a sports analytics company where we were predicting the propensity that elite athletes had to incur soft tissue injuries, and that was actually where my my fascination with with power, with uh, with information, with with uh, sort of a, applied ethics started. And that was that was a number of years ago now. Fast forward, I, uh, I've done a bunch of things in between, uh, but most recently I've been the, the founder and, and CEO of a company called, called Greater Than X. Uh, we're a, quite a specialized services firm and we basically helped organizations attempt to answer the question, how might we design a technology and organization 
that is worthy of people's trust. And, and that question has really been the, the focus of, of my career. And alongside that, I've been uh, impact investing as an angel investor. I've made 66 investments since 2016 and uh, really, really love just the, the whole idea of, of supporting organizations in that way. It feels like a high leverage uh, opportunity to, to do good. Um, and then, you know, uh, uh, on top of all of that, the important stuff, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a dog walker, <laughs> I'm a home cook. I'm a gardener, you know, all those different types of things that, uh, <laughs> that we often forget, but uh, those are the most important things in life. Awesome. Thanks, Nate. That was a great intro. Um, so our topic for this evening is all around data and, um, and also trust. So tell me a little bit about why it's important in this age and in the current climate for businesses to really be thinking about how we can develop trust with our customers or our users and and how data is kind of like central to that yeah look it, it, it's a it's a great question and in some ways it seems super obvious but it often it often isn't so i'd probably answer that by saying at its foundation organizations today are information or data driven so so it's a prerequisite that organizations are able to access data uh, you know normalize it make sense of it uh, analyze it, hopefully derive some sort of actionable insight from it, and then, and then do something, you know, better than they were doing it yesterday. It's kind of the premise of of, of modern business. Uh, and for quite a long time, organizations have done that in ways that isn't necessarily always nefarious, although there are some, some nefarious actors. Um, most organizations aren't. Um, but they've done it in a way that I would suggest is, less thoughtful and less intentional than than we may have come to expect today. You know, and, and just to, to paint a really simple picture. So instead of an organization uh, leading some type of product discovery process with, well, okay, well, how are we going to do this? What's the data that we're going to be using? How, how might the way that we're utilizing this data impact people? Oh, gosh, that's not an impact that we want to see. Like, how might we mitigate that? How might, how, how might we design to, to, to not realize that? And, you know, uh, they haven't really done that. They've sort of gone, well, let's just get everything and we'll make sense of it later. Don't worry about it. It's cool. And whether that's ignorance, naivety or something else, we, we don't really know. That's super complex and it's, it's probably quite a human problem. Uh, but it hasn't worked out super well in lots of ways. And to become a little bit more concrete, so if there are real commercially astute folks out there, let me hit you with some data that, that I think will be reasonably compelling. So so remembering that organizations need data to operate, but also considering that people all around the world are uh, moving into a position where they have more concrete rights as it relates to their, to their personal data. And I think that's a really good thing. Uh, back in 2018, Accenture did a systematic review of the performance of 7,030 companies, so a pretty reasonable sample size. And what they determined from that analysis was that trust disproportionately impacted bottom line business outcomes like EBITDA and growth. So if you have some type of trust eroding event, really bad for business. If you're able to do things that materially enhance the trust-based relationships that you have with different stakeholders, materially good for business. So that's really promising. Uh, and there's some other data from Ipsos Mori uh, from 2014, actually, and this is, this is UK data, um, that suggests there's actually a difference between the trust that we place in the organization 
and the trust that we place in the organization's data practices. And they refer to that as a data trust deficit. And, and the trust that we place in the data practices is lower, which is, which is concerning. It should probably be the same because it's kind of like intrinsic to the relationship that we have with organizations today. Now, what that leads me to believe, and this is again what I've been, been spending the last decade on, is that, well, if we can do things to enhance the trustworthiness of the organization and the way that the organization uses data in its products and services, its broader proposition, then we can positively impact the way that that organization interfaces with the world around it. We can enhance its competitiveness. We can better the relationships that it has, et cetera. And there really just is a good body of evidence now to suggest that's the case. So, you know, you could look at it from the perspective of, well, being more trustworthy is like it's kind of just doing the right thing. Yeah, if that's if that's what motivates you, that's a great place to start. But if you want to be really commercially astute, there's also really good literature to suggest the more trusted you are, the more beneficial it will be to your stakeholder relationships and the better it's going to be for your business as well. You used two different terms there. You talked about both trust and trustworthiness. Mm. What's the difference between those? Can you design for both or is there a hierarchy there or what's, how does that that's work? A, that's, a, that's a seriously intelligent question and um, one that I can answer, <laughs> I think, reasonably well. But this is, this is also something, Randy, I've got to admit, it's pretty complex. Um, and, and it's kind of like, you know, are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? Um, mm-hmm. Sort of phenomenon in the social sciences that seems to be... Uh, exhibited all over the place, you know, and, and I, I, I've, I've gone on that journey um, with, with my understanding of the, the sort of trust literature. When I first started, I became, I think, overconfident, like, oh, wow, I know all this stuff now and I'm going to put it into practice. And then you just realize, oh, crap, it's, it's a bit complicated. And then you kind of, you go into the valley of despair. And now I'm, you know, now I'm on the up after having done this for so many years. But, but I, I am in that place where I'm like, trust me, it's complicated. So, uh, with that out of the way, slight caveat, uh, the hierarchy from my perspective, and, and I think we're talking about this in the context of folks listening are designing products and services, leading organizations, etc. Trustworthiness is the thing that you should be focusing on, uh, but we'll, we'll, we, can co- we can come back to why. So, so, okay, what is, you know, what is trust? Well, trust is uh, typically uh, thought of as like hope about expectations fulfilled. So you enter into some relationship um, or you find yourself in some context. You don't really have the ability to verify that something is or isn't going to take place. You have to make a decision about whether to proceed or not. And that's the role that trust plays. And there's a a trust researcher from, from Oxford, Rachel Botsman, that defines trust as confidence in the unknown. I like to clarify that it's high confidence in the unknown. Um, and, and that's, that's, that, that's one of the more succinct and I feel actionable definitions for trust, but it's also complex. You know, trust is two way or, or multi-directional. It's influenced by lots of different factors like our experience, our context, our language, different biases, cognitive biases, etc., um, cultural beliefs, uh, you know, our identity, our values, even our genetics. Like it's, it's really, it's really complex. And there's also a spectrum. So it's not just like you trust or you don't. It's not this sort of binary thing. It's it's a sort of uh, more fluid um, and uh, responsive um, state. Um, and often trust is in kind of a state of flux from all the way from 
like I passionately trust this thing or this person or this entity all the way through to passionate distrust. Like you will go out of your way to screw them over type of thing. Um, <laughs> and, and trustworthiness, it really represents qualities or attributes that um, when behaviorally exhibited and when experienced from say a recipient are likely to increase trust. And there was actually some wonderful work from uh, a colleague and um, someone who, who I think is uh, is doing some of the best work in this space that was released late last year, and it was a three-year systematic review of the trust literature. Uh, and, and what Hilary Sutcliffe and, and her colleagues in that work, TIGTEC, uh, TIG, Trust in the Governance of Technology, what it stands for, identified were these seven signals of trust. And you could think of them as, uh, you could think of them as qualities of trustworthiness. That's the way I like to think of them. The first is intent. So how do you act in the public's best interest? The second is competence. The third is respect. We then have integrity, inclusion, openness, you know, like a willingness to be, to be vulnerable to the actions of others and fairness. Uh, and I really like that model because often uh, other models will be slightly simpler. If you look at, um, say, Ken Grayson's work from the Trust Project at the Kellogg School of Management or Northwestern, you know, he often talks about three sort of primary dimensions of trust. If you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is one of the you know biggest trust resources, they just have two dimensions, um, even though they have a, a quite a sophisticated scoring system to develop what they call their net trust score. They just have competence and ethics. You know, so there's a lot of discrepancy in the literature. But, you know, to summarize, trustworthiness uh, is these sort of qualities or attributes that we should be designing for in the context of our organizations, our products, our services, how we behave. Trust is sort of this relational outcome, but it is complex. It is nuanced. It's, it's somewhat ambiguous at times. And it's, you know, it's constantly in a state of flux as a result of a variety of different variables. Could nerd out on that for a long time, but I realize it's a lot, right? So I'll stop there. I'll take a breather, have a sip of coffee, given it's 6 a.m. <laughs> so um, when we talk about data trust, mm -hmm. um, what are we talking about? Are we talking about making sure that operationally we're kind of storing data safely? And so we're trusting a business to, to kind of look after that data, or uh, I guess it's like, the way that people use data as well, you know, are they going to use it in a way that sort of takes advantage of you? I'm thinking something along the lines of, you know, if we understand everything about you, we're going to just hammer you with adverts or whatever that um, to try and just sell you as much stuff as possible. Or, you know, what, is there a kind of like a start and an end when it comes to this? And, and I guess one of the other sort of questions which I have around this sort of data trust theme is, are, are we also talking about the user experience design mm. and how you might use dark patterns or, you know, ways of kind of manipulating the user experience to yep. bring out, uh, you know, to take advantage of a, of a person and their, the way that, that you know that they might behave? Yeah. Just imagine a job advert for like some big tech company in the Bay Area, right? And it's like, it's like requirements, demonstrated ability to uh, take advantage of psychological vulnerabilities. <laughs> like if you put your hand <laughs> exactly. out, like, and I'm, I'm being a bit facetious, but 
that's pretty much what we've been doing, right? You know, the royal we, and we're all somewhat responsible for this. Uh, look, that's a great question, Lil. Um, so, so, so data trust is really, when we refer to data trust, we're referring to the, the, the confidence that an individual or group or cohort or how, population, however we want to think about it, has in that organization's data practices, the intent of those data practices, the truthfulness of those data practices, the methods through which they can participate um, and exercise their rights. So, so it's reasonably broad and, and encompassing. In the context of the, like, what's the scope of data trust in, say, a, like a day-to-day sort of operational role? Absolutely, you're right. Um, it, it relates to the way that we architect a given system. It relates to the way that we engage in practices like privacy and security by design or data protection by design and default, as it's referred to in the EU GDPR. Um, it relates to uh, the way we utilize information from research to inform the way that we construct a proposition. It relates to the way that we use psychological vulnerabilities or heuristics or cognitive biases, however we want to think about them, um, to construct uh, uh, sort of uh, experience pathways that are in our best interests as the company, which is often the case. And I think that's the problem with, with uh, I just refer to it as manipulative design. Um, that That's really the biggest problem. Like, like in the behavioral sciences, we, like, you know, choice architecture is is uh, the the broader topic, and choice architecture is uh, unavoidable. Um, you, you know, you you can't just lay out literally every possible choice that someone could make. Um, you know, n Googleplex, uh, like that's probably slightly uh, ambitious, but you know, there, there's just so many possible choices. You can't do that, so you have to you have to provide some choice. Like, but. Why are you providing that choice? That that's really what's important, right? Like, what are the goals of the organization? What are the incentive structures? And if you look at the way that organizations work today, um, the, the primary goal of a commercial organization is quarter on quarter. If it's a if it's a public organ, uh, corporation, increase shareholder value, and all of the incentive structures that trickle throughout the organization that encourage behaviors and discourage behaviors, they're based on that, right? You know, and, and that that is what makes it so problematic. So if you're a you're a you're a head of UX or something like that, um, head of product design or um, your VP product or some or whatever your functional role is within an organization, you are constrained by the goals and incentives of the uh, the complex system that is your organization and the way that it interacts with uh, you know other complex systems, political, social, economic, etc. Uh, which makes it really, really hard. So to, to come back to it, the scope is is reasonably broad. Um, however, there's a heap of really pragmatic stuff that, that can be done. And when organizations start doing stuff this way, it's not an all or nothing. You know, it's not like, oh, wow, we're really bad at this today. And tomorrow we have to completely transform and become super adept at, at, at designing for data trust. It, you know, it's a it's a progression, and organizations providing they have the intentionality um, and the authorizing environment, the this, this sort of structural support to do this, they can make consistent progress day on day, week on week, month on month, year on year, um, and uh, and as a result of that, you know, do some really great things.
Mind the Product are taking their San Francisco conference online again next month on 14th and 15th of July, and it's shaping up to be another smash hit event. Don't miss two days of invaluable product insight, 18 inspirational speakers, and countless opportunities to network with your product peers in interactive roundtables, one-to-one speed networking, and social hours. And that's just the beginning. MTPCon Americas kicks off 365 days of dedicated product learning because every ticket includes a full year of Mind the Product membership worth more than $250. So if you're looking to level up your career, have a burning desire to build better products, and want your organization to be at the cutting edge of product thinking, then MTPCon Digital Americas is the event for you. Find out more and buy your tickets today at mindtheproduct.com forward slash Americas. That is mindtheproduct.com forward slash Americas. Okay, so I'm curious. So we definitely need to talk about designing our products for data trust and for, uh, for trustworthiness. But before we do that, I'm really curious. What's the evidence that consumers actually care about this? I mean, they tell us this. Mm-hmm. I know that I I care about it in theory, but the first time someone says hand over your data to get this Wi-Fi or whatever, I do it because convenience trumps it or seems to half the time anyway. Yeah. Yeah, look, I I think this is a little bit of a false dichotomy, to be honest, in some ways, Randy. And, you know, what you're referring to, and I know you, you know, you reference this when we've, we've, you know, done a little bit of back and forth. It's often referred to as the privacy paradox. So this idea uh, that we attitudinally, so our stated preference is that we care about rights relating to our information, et cetera. Um, This is also something that I should, I should caveat is super complex uh, and just has a lot of variables that, that impact it. So look, I'll give you like a position statement, um, but it's probably not the type of thing that we can really thoughtfully and rigorously tease out in this call. <laughs> I should specify that. Um, I'm an empiricist. So when, you know, when, when you sort of ask questions like this, like I want to go down into all of the details, but we've got constraints. <laughs> so um, coming back to it, privacy paradox, our stated preference is that we care. Our behavior is kind of that we don't, i.e., I care about my privacy. I go into Starbucks. They ask me to to quote unquote consent, and, and that's a topic that, that we probably won't get into, but but a problematic one. Uh, and then as a result of that, I'm sharing all of this stuff with with them for like for not that much value, right? For free Wi-Fi, um, you know. So, okay, what's the evidence that they care? The first thing that we have to do here is. We have to look at the attitudinal stuff, right? Because it still is important. So, so if all things were were kind of optimal, how might people act based on what they say, right? And there is there is in almost every observational context a gap between what people say and what they do. But there's there's often justifiable reasons for that, whether they be system constraints, whether they be um, cognitive biases and shortcuts, like. <laughs> Uh, sort of evolutionary uh, biological constraints. Like there's lots of different reasons for that. I think that the 2019 Pew Privacy Study, and this is this is a bit sort of North American focused, but uh, my experience leads me to believe it translates reasonably well to a lot of different jurisdictions. 
And the Pew study from the Pew Privacy study from 2019 suggested that American consumers were more concerned than ever before about how their information was being used. It suggested that they did not believe the uh, risks um, were supported with appropriate benefits. Uh, it, it suggested that they, they, they didn't feel they could, they could just go anywhere and do anything in life without being persistently surveilled. And there are actually a lot of different, um, complications with, with persistent surveillance. If you're familiar with um, sort of prison studies that, that produce this concept called the panopticon effect. Um, when we, we think we're being surveilled, even if we don't know when, how, why, et cetera, um, it changes our behavior often in ways that we don't truly understand. And that's really concerning, right? So there's lots of different issues. Again, another big topic that we probably won't be able to get into. Now, that data has been pretty consistent for at least the last decade, meaning people say they care. They really do. And we're talking about like overwhelming majorities here. It's not like it's like down the middle, like where it's like a tug of war and, you know, we're ebbing, you know, and flowing back and forth. It's not like that. It's like the overwhelming majority says they care across lots of different jurisdictions. Yes, I am biasing this towards the West. Um, again, caveat with that. So how do they behave? Well, we, we kind of know, right? Like if, if you're, if you're a PM, um, and you go, okay, um, I want to try and determine how many people read our terms and conditions and make an informed decision about whether to have a relationship with us, a business relationship with us. I look at our behavioral event logs. Um, oh, no one. <laughs> like that's, right. And, and that's kind of the reality. Oh, okay. I want to analyze our cookie consent, um, like behavioral data to see like how deep are people going into this? Um, yeah, and there's actually some there's some very good very good um, studies that are published in the peer reviewed literature on that particular topic, uh, both topics, in fact. Um, oh no, everyone's just clicking accept or reject or whatever. It's the it's the immediate thing, the most salient option. Um, manipulative design can impact that choice. Uh, okay, there's there's a discrepancy there. The question we then have to ask is why? And it's almost like you could do like a five, if, to put it in simple terms, you could do like a five whys type of exercise there, right? And just keep diving deeper, deeper, deeper. Well, like I've done the five whys on that many, many times. Uh, and uh, I'm led to believe that the broader system constraints that we operate within as individuals, um, the, the social contract that we are forcibly entered into, the socio-political, socio-economic context are what makes that very challenging. And I'll, I'll provide a concrete example. So a couple of years ago, I did some analysis on the sign-up process for a transactional account with one of Australia's biggest banks, right? Very, very normal experience. You know, they have, they have billions upon billions of dollars, so, that, so they invest reasonably well in their digital teams. Um, they design really lovely, um, like, like digital experiences, um, that, that people think are good, right? Like, and they're, 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 they are, they're top quality. They have design centers of excellence. They have all these different types of things. Um, signing up for a transaction account is like a few-minute process. Really simple, really nice, right? Everything you'd expect. And then before I'm able to open the account, I met with the, the contractual stuff, right? And it's not just one contract. And, and the first contract, the the terms and conditions of that transactional account are 33 and a half thousand words and they read at grade 16 reading level and that's pretty complex right um like like you would you would need to be a contract lawyer 
that has experience in financial services and take multiple hours, probably have conversations with the lawyers that actually drafted the contract in the first place to even attempt to understand it well enough to make an informed decision, right? Mm. But think about the context. I'm trying to sign up for something in less than five minutes, yet I'm forcibly, right? And that, that yeah. this is the sort of language, is a power imbalance. Like me, Nate, one, one little guy living, living in Australia, I don't have much power relative to a multi-billion dollar corporation. They're, they are forcing me to enter into this contract. I have no choice. I can't go, hold up a minute. I don't agree with this clause right here. Let's negotiate and then meet somewhere that we're both happy. And that's what contract law is actually about. It's, it's a meeting of the minds and we've gone a long way from that, right? So that's that's a, an example to illustrate well, why is it really hard for people to behaviorally care they say they care their behavior doesn't doesn't support that and that can be extrapolated out right that that's the sort of general context all around the world there is information asymmetry there is a power imbalance even if people do care pretty much the only option for them is to go and be a hermit and live in a cave somewhere in the wilderness because that's the <laughs> only way that you can you can decouple yourself from the way that these things work now in simulated um sort of labs so, so what i'm talking about is a research setting uh, a, a lab research setting where we simulate the context of um like a, a, a given scenario and, and and you can't assign particularly high confidence to to any behavioral insights from that stuff right it's really speculative but in studies that look at that well all things being equal if people had a choice what would they do they always always choose the privacy preserving option but in real life they don't have the choice now we we are seeing that change we're seeing lots of different products and services being designed to be privacy enhancing we've seen the the made safe which is a um an initiative uh, uh, that's been around for sort of 15 years, recently launched the Safe Network, which is like fundamentally a new internet with privacy and security baked in. Now, whether that really takes off, we don't know. I hope it does because it just solves so many problems um, and it pushes to the side so many issues that folks are grappling with on a daily basis because of the client-server architecture of the web, making it very hard to design privacy-enhancing products and services. Um, so there's, there's, there's lots of stuff going on that leads me to believe we're going to make progress. Uh, but Randy, coming back to that to summarize, I think people do care. I think given the opportunity, they would act um, on that that stated preference, but it's just not realistic. It's, you know, it's way too hard. And and I'm exactly the same, right? I do the exact same thing. Like that that behavior we refer to as the agreement bypass bias. I do that too. I know I don't have a choice. The, I want the product or service. I want the outcome that that thing I'm hiring that product, you know, in job to be done sort of terminology that I'm hiring that thing to help me achieve. Uh, and I just, I, I skip it because there's just no point. I'm not going to read 33 and a half thousand words and get frustrated because I'm at a disadvantage in the context of that relationship. You know, I just, I'm just going to move on and pretend it doesn't exist. So how do we get to a point where we are designing for data trust you kind of mentioned in um, in one of your blog posts about the the principles that mm. can be applied or that can be used to kind of set the rules. So is, is that the, the best place to start? Um, I don't know if it's the best place to start because th there's a lot of, there's just a lot of different considerations, Lil. Like, you know, if your organisation, let, let me just use Facebook's a really easy organisation to 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 highlight this right so 
Facebook's an advertising business, regardless of what it says. It's like, it's very, it's business model is really simple and it's going to have to diversify. I think it knows that it's hemorrhaging. Um, it, it, it needs more sustainable income sources. Uh, I think it, it, it's got a hell of a lot of smart people. So pro- probably will figure some stuff out, right? But they've systematically eroded people's fundamental rights and freedoms through, you know, scaling their business model. Um, but their business model is to, is to get people to do lots of stuff and sell insights about that to folks that want to target people who might be interested in their products and services. Like it's, it's really simple. It's, it's not super complex, you know? So for, for, for that organization, if they were to try and do something like data trust by design, guess what? Their business model has to change. There's just, there's no two ways about it. Like you can't do mm. surveillance based advertising and make it like it, it it's a bit of an oxymoron, right? And so that's where the challenge is. Now, for lots of organizations that just genuinely offer a product or service and persistent surveillance isn't their thing, way easier place to start from because the value proposition is actually quite clear and concrete, you know, um, and, and Facebook's customers are the, are the advertisers and we know that, right? It's not that you can't have an ecosystem approach where there are lots of different actors, stakeholders, um, entities, whatever, you, you absolutely can, but you know, it's challenging for organizations like that. They would have to step back, question the very premise, the purpose of their organization in the first place and kind of build up from there. But if you're an organization that offers, gosh, I don't know, um, you know, some type of personal financial management service or like something like that, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a concrete value proposition and the person is, is using the thing in order to achieve an outcome. And that's what they pay for. That that's, that's your monetization strategy. It's a little bit easier, but you still wouldn't start with data trust by design because data trust by design really primarily talks about the kind of like service design layer refers to the service design layer. So, you know, utilizing um, human centered design, best practice, feeding in behavioral insights from the behavioral sciences, et cetera, et cetera. But the stuff that comes before that in your sort of system design, system architecture, et cetera, um, Probably the best place to start with something like that is privacy and security by design, which has been around since the late 90s uh, and, and is really the result of folks like Dr. Anne Kavalkian, um, you know, who've been pushing that for many years and it made its way effectively into the GDPR referenced uh, as data protection by design and default. That's really where you start because that forces you to consider like the, the how might we do this in a privacy enhancing way, in a security enhancing way, et cetera. Um, but then there's also an argument to suggest you even go further back from that and you kind of start with the, the sort of ethics or morality of what you're trying to do in the first place and ask the question, like, just because we can, should we? Okay, if we're going to, like, how are the ways that we can do this that are going to be most beneficial, that are going to be most respectful, that are going to best enable people's fundamental rights and freedoms to be protected? So, so you kind of, you go multiple, like, like steps down into the weeds uh, and you kind of start with that bigger stuff. But that's also not always possible. So um, what we often find is that there's within the organizations that are wanting to do this, you know, with intentionality, there's a balance between these bigger sort of structural elements that they know they want to work on, but they recognize is going to take time with, all right, and this is very business language, what are the quick wins? And that's okay, right? It's, It's actually really productive because if we had to wait multiple years to do this stuff better, that like that would be demotivating so what's the way in which we can dual track if you want to think about it this way you know uh, uh, we do the biggest stuff but we do it over time and we try and get some quick wins on the board the, the stuff that really needs improvement 
information disclosures. They're horrific. Um, the, you know, they, they, they basically prey on people's psychological vulnerabilities. Um, and they're just, they're, they're, they're not fair. They're not equitable. So you can, you can start there. And we developed at, at Greater Than X a toolkit called Better Disclosure, which brings together uh, traditional legal practice with human-centered design and behavioral science to um, enable teams to do that information disclosure radically better and, and do it in a systematic way. So that's, that's a really important place um, to pay attention to. You can also look at the, 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 the broader sort of experience that you're designing and consider, well, what are the, what are the things, like what are the shortcuts that we're enabling people to take? What is the choice architecture? Is that choice architecture completely self-serving or have we actually considered the, the needs, the preferences, the values of the individuals that, that are using this product or service and start changing the way that your user experience works? That's a really powerful thing to do as well that doesn't require you to go and do all that big transformational stuff. And then there's just like conversations that you can have with a bunch of folks internally, data scientists and software engineers, et cetera, to start talking about, well, under the hood, the stuff that people don't see perhaps, what are the open source technologies? What are the protocols? What are the products or services that maybe we could, we could hire in place of some of the stuff that we're using today? Or what are the things that we might do differently? So that the, even, even if people aren't seeing what's happening, this is um, occurring in a more sort of respectful manner. You know, so there's multiple layers uh, of, of that. Um, data trust by design is like, think of it as like, it's like if you've got this broad holistic toolkit, it's like, it's like one section of your toolbox and it can be a really powerful one, but it, it, it only works really well if you've got the other stuff as well. Okay, so we could talk about this for hours more, uh, obviously, <laughs> uh, but we've been... We've talked a lot about theoretical stuff today. We've talked a bit about practical. I mm -hmm. want to leave people with with uh, something very practical, if I can. Um, so you talk, just talked about information disclosures. Yeah. You talked about uh, having a couple of structured conversations internally. But for anyone listening who wants to get more involved, aside from digging deeper into this, what's one practical thing that they can put into practice today or tomorrow? So th th this is... Uh, that, uh, first of all, great question, Randy. Look, I could probably offer up a bunch of uh, different options here, but let me let me go with something simple that I think is has the potential to be profound. But that depends on what you do with it, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Spider Man's uncle coming <laughs> through with the goods. So, take one of your information disclosures. Um, your your pri it could be a privacy notice or privacy policy. It could be your terms and conditions. Go to Hemingway app, which is a readability assessment tool. Copy the content, the raw content from your information disclosure, regardless of what the information disclosure is, paste it into Hemingway app, which is a free tool that will immediately give you, you know, or in you know, less than a second, a readability score. It will tell you like the, the grading. It will give you an idea of its structure, like how many hard sentences are there to read, how many easy, like stuff like that. And then take that to someone internally, right? Like, so if you're the one responsible for this, you've done it. Take that to someone internally who you think is going to be shocked. Hey, did you know when people sign up to our product or service, they're forced to agree to 25,000 words that actually reads at a postgraduate reading level? Holy crap. No wonder no one reads this thing. Do you think we could do this better? And just, like, just start with that conversation and don't be accusational. You know, be, be open and be curious and ask the how might we questions. I've honestly found that to be a really powerful way to start because it begins a much broader discussion about 
the types of relationships that you hope to establish, the respectful relationships, the trusting relationships that you hope to establish with your customers and other stakeholders. And, you know, a a lot of stuff can kind of flow organically from that. Fantastic. Nate, that's very practical, very simple. Uh, I suspect the conversations may not be as simple as the task, but it's a great place to start from. It is. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Lil. Thank you so much, Nate. You know, that's really got me thinking about how we can do better at our organization and bake some best practice into the product right from the start when it comes to data trust. Yeah, and Nate finished that off with a couple of really cool practical things you can do, but he gave us a whole bunch of other resources and he talked about a lot of stuff during that and it's all in the show notes. So go to the show notes, uh, read them, do cool stuff. And come back next week and rate us and review us and do all the other stuff that every podcast tells you to do to make them more popular. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash Product Tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.